HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following episode has been brought to you by TechServe and the Lower East Side Ecology Center's 8th Annual After the Holidays E-Waste Events. The Ecology Center and TechServe are rolling out its 8th Annual After the Holidays E-Waste Events with 10 planned events in January 2011 to help you responsibly dispose of all your unwanted or broken gadgets. Help meet the goal of collecting 100 tons this January by spreading the word to your friends and neighbors. For more information, visit www.lesecologycenter.org. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Actually, today, off-site. had just taken a course at the Met. That's the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, with Maite Gomez-Rejon of ArtBytes.net. That's A-A-R-T-B-I-T-E-S dot net. Now, what she does is encapsulates the idea that food and art aren't separate. They're not disparate, but that the two cultures actually uh, co-align and co-mix. And by using art as inspiration, creates a meal therewith. Uh, today's adventure at the Met was actually about Thomas Jefferson, which she may uh, very well say is America's first foodie. How did you come to find Jefferson as an inspiration for today's class? I was studying um, 18th century French art, and somehow he came into the into the mix. I ran across his name on a few different um, on a few different occasions, and I became obsessed with Thomas Jefferson's with all things Thomas Jefferson, as I have been with all things Louis the Fourteenth, Fifteenth, and Sixteenth. And I just found it fascinating of how he is such a person that you know we associate him with the Declaration of Independence and, you know, the beginning of the of the U.S. as a country and just this brilliant mind, but never, I had never really thought about him as, as a person. 
and just the just imagining him in France around the time of the revolution where he lived before you know, we, he served as minister um, to France before the revolution and just I loved just imagining him in these incredible settings eating this extravagant food and then bringing a lot of those foods and a lot of those traditions back to the US so like a true gourmand but let's talk about your background too a little bit because you you grew up in Laredo Texas and then attended grad school in Chicago uh, spent time at FCI here in New York learning to cook and then went out to LA kind of on a whim of a job. Mm -hmm, exactly. So yeah, so I, I basically, my background is in art, moved to New York to be an artist and started working in museum education and then started working as a chef and caterer after grad school and you know, some, I started to teaching these classes on and off for I guess it was 10 years ago I started doing this kind of on and off and then after moving to LA for a job at a, at a the one city I said I would never in a million years move to um, I started um, working at the Getty Villa and started teaching these classes on ancient Rome and ancient Greece and I did a whole uh, I did a class on Alexander the Great combining both and it's something that I had been thinking about and dabbling on for so many years but there I just it helped me define it, and I was not very happy with my job there, so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to quit my job and see what happens. Worst case scenario, I get another job. But so far, I haven't, I haven't had to. I've been doing this. Um, well, that's, that's always inspirational. Um, the medium that you worked in was sculpture. Mm -hmm. Do you think that tactility helped, you know, bridging to cooking? Absolutely. I've always cooked. My family, they're, they're big, big, you know, cooks. My grandmother was a baker. It's just being at home was all everything revolved around the kitchen um, but but yes when I when I first moved to New York to be an artist I found I had much more fun cooking for friends than being in my studio because it was social and I found that creative the same creative outlet and I think it is because it is text tactile and because it is um, it's 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 tangible um, that I, I it, it was it was a combination of, because it's tangible, it was a combination of sculpture, and then with all of the colors, it was a combination of sculpture and painting. So it just was just the perfect art form. And then you fed people, made them happy, and then you just washed dishes, and nothing piled in a corner of a studio anywhere. Yeah, so believe me, after taking a course, it's a win-win situation because you do get to adventure through uh, the museum, see spectacular art, but also have uh, an absurdly well-curated meal. Um, <laughs> Spe <laughs> Speaking of tangible, I thought it was interesting that you said um, that Jefferson was in Paris actually not just observing their culture or as you know this wondrous thing of creativity and the arts, but also was repulsed by the excess of uh, French society, but was so drawn to it that it, it enamored him somehow. Yes, I think just the the... the it was the beginning of America, and it was all about equality and, and liberty. And, and the, the French have had this long tradition of, of the monarchy. It was something that was so different and so much against what this country was 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 establishing themselves on or, or, or basing themselves upon. So he was repulsed by all of that excess and the, and the kings with the wigs and the fur and, and, and all of that. But at the same time, they had a long history of, of dining and, and of art and and this, everything was so established so ev so he was looking at a lot of that even though he didn't want to become completely a part of that he was taking some elements of that and bringing them back to the US essentially to make this world better so he was repulsed by the excess but was also just 
just so drawn to the art, the music, the the, the flirtation, just the, all of it. Um, so he was taking the bit, he was taking the good stuff, the good parts of it. He brought the good parts of it back to the U.S. Um, by good stuff, do you mean 86 crates worth of good stuff? 86 crates worth of good stuff, exactly. He brought back 86 crates of European cookbooks, um, figs, Parmesan cheese, the first pasta maker to enter the U.S., tablecloths, um, apricots, just 86 crates full of good stuff, exactly. So you said the first pasta maker. There were also uh, a couple other firsts that he brought back to the U.S. that uh, he was known to, well, he only wrote down seven recipes. Uh, you know, I learned all this info from Maite's class, so definitely check out artbites.net and take her class because it's a wonderful, uh, you know, breadth of knowledge. But seven recipes, and it was quite possibly the first ice cream recipe to come back to the U.S.? That was in his hand. Seven recipes in his hand. He was he loved food and, and, and dining. He, he was not a cook. He just went into the kitchen to wind the clock. But there are seven recipes written in his hand. The first one of vanilla ice cream, one of, of macaroni, which was a generic term for, for noodles. Um, peachy macaroons. I think he had a bit of a, a, bit of a sweet tooth. Um, so what other first, yes, yeah, so, but the, I love the, the, the first ice cream recipe in his hand in the U.S. is pretty spectacular. I mean, we have him to, to thank for that. Yeah. And it's also ingredients that he brought back, like vanilla was introduced through Jefferson. And what other ingredients actually were brought back from Paris, um, not just as condiments, but as you know, an intricate part of our diets nowadays? Yeah, well, definitely vanilla, which is fascinating because vanilla is native to the New World, and it made its way post-conquest, made itself to Europe, and then back to America via via Jefferson. Um, par- like I mentioned, Parmesan cheese he brought back from his travels to Italy when he did the Grand Tour to Italy. Um, French tarragon he brought back. Um, apricots, figs, grapevines, um, olive trees, just many seeds that he was planting here. And some of these foods had been brought for, by other people, but he was the one that was really just gave them an, an importance because he knew how much they would better our lives in the new world. And, and conversely brought corn to Paris. And conversely brought corn to Paris. Yes, he, was, he grew corn in his Parisian apartment on the Champs-Élysées and actually served corn on the cob to, to French nobility at some point, or, or, or just French aristocrats, not nobility, French aristocrats, exactly. And he also, um, he was one of the first people back in the U.S. to to eat, you know, tomatoes. And he served tomatoes at the White House, at a presidential dinner at the White House, which is another ingredient that's native to the New World, which he made, you know, made its way back post-conquest, and he made popular here. And what did he call potatoes? Uh, I mean tomatoes. Tomatas. But he also introduced potatoes as food. He, yeah, he served, um, there's a, a mention in a letter that he served um, potatoes without their jackets fried in oil at a White House dinner. So the first um, French fry. I, I, I like to imagine that as a French, first French fry. Without their jackets. Um, <laughs> feel very alive. In yeah. uh, keeping on the idea of first, you know, olive tree, um, grapevines introduce a wine culture, like maybe may have been America's first big onophile. Um, yeah. He was actually the biggest wine connoisseur of his age in, in, in America, and he actually tried to grow, you know, make wines in Monticello. It didn't work. They actually are making wines at Monticello now. They have a small, um, I guess, a small vineyard there, but he did say that one day America would make wines to rival those of France. 
Yeah, I think there was a tasting in 1976 that uh, showed, you know, France or Paris that U.S. wines could stand up to it. But uh, of those wines, what kind of wines did he drink and how many did he drink? He was, a, I mean, he, he loved wines and wine culture. He wasn't a big drinker, though. He only had a, maybe two glasses of wine with, with, with a meal. So, But he was more of a, of a connoisseur than an actual drinker. And when... Congress was in session. He had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bottles of wine and and um, champagne. He 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 um, he loved that whole wine culture and it, he appreciated a good bottle of wine. Bordeaux was his wine of choice, which is what we enjoyed today with our with our meal. Yeah, we're we're gonna get to the meal because what was so great was a. Uh, during the tour of the museum, you got these influences and understandings of certain pieces of art and paintings, and uh, we looked at silver terrines that uh, were served to French nobility from Louis the Fourteenth to Louis the Sixteenth. But that it was brought back into the kitchen. This this curated meal wasn't just you know a whim. I mean, it wasn't just pairing notes. How did you come to the meal? I like when I do the meals. I like to have. Then bring the bring the museum component to life, and vice versa. And the meal have it bring the museum to life. They kind of work together. And my meals um, are I like the way that you describe them as the curated meals. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but that they oh, yes. <laughs> thanks. Um, they're always inspired by history or inspired by certain ideas. And I always use re- ingredients that would have been historic, but but they're always I like to tailor them to modern palettes so the he was um, he ate a lot of vegetables he wasn't a vegetarian in the modern sense of the word but his meat was a garnish to his vegetables so I definitely took that into consideration when preparing the meal. Of course, the roasted potatoes with some herbs de Provence, which one of my students brought back to me from from Paris a few weeks ago, which I thought was appropriate. Um, we made a peas. Peas were his favorite vegetable, so peas with butter and, um, and mint, which is a recipe that appears uh, in a, the first American cookbook, The Virginia Housewife by Mary Randolph, who was a relative of, of his. Um, a salad with um, with lots of different types of greens, fresh herbs, and a tarragon vinegar. Tarragon was his favorite herb. Um, and then what else? A salmon with French beans and tomatoes and olives. Of course, the olive, he, he, he thought about, he, he mentioned the olive tree being the greatest gift of God to, the, to, to humans. So we, there was a lot of olive oil and, and some olives in that dish with the salmon. And then a chicken fricassee, which is, appears both in the Mary Randolph cookbook and in the 17th century cookbook um, the, called The French Cook by La Varenne. And that was the earliest um, French um, French cookbook. So it appears in both in different ways. And this was my adaptation of the of the chicken fricassee. What was so lovely, too, is that the meal was light and approachable and easy to replicate back at home. It wasn't extravagant, which was a similar thing happening at that point in time in France as well, that the Age of Enlightenment moved away from Rococo and the lavish idea of, you know, excess. And aside from that, it also moved away from cooking, like uh, with Karem and his master sauces, moving into lighter, more vegetarian, terroir-based foods. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even bringing it further present, making it relevant to now, this is how we eat. We don't eat these heavily sauced foods anymore. It's not very practical. And I love the idea of maybe somebody taking this meal and, and, and making it at home and, and just sharing some fun facts. 
And actually, speaking of sharing, one of one of the most interesting things that you noted on our um, journey through the Met was that we went from the French wing to the American wing, and the differences between the room, aside from the French being dimly lit and like super extravagant, um, and the American room having nice little light and sparse but simple, and you know well-intentioned and understood was the shape of the tables. Can you explain a little about that? The shape of the table, they were oval tables, and, and Jefferson always sat on either an oval table or a round table um, to, 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 so that everybody would feel equal. He didn't want to be the head of, of, of the table, and this is something that a tradition that was very important to him. You know, in France, the, the king would, of course, be there would be a spotlight on him in some way and sometimes the spotlight would be he would have somebody eating his food to, to make sure it wasn't poisoned um, and that definitely gave that person the, uh, an importance that Jefferson did away with. Yeah. Um, what was really uh, extraordinary to note too was that Jefferson didn't cook. He didn't cook. He loved food, he loved dining, he loved food culture but he only entered the kitchen to wind the clock. <laughs> and who actually did most of his cooking? His slaves. He had, you know, all men are created equal, yet he had 200 slaves. Um, and a lot of the, well, I don't know how many of those, but many of them worked in the kitchen, of course, worked in the garden. He had a 23-acre, um, actually, no, was it 100 acres? I mean, he was a huge acre, yeah. lots of acres in his... Um, Much more than we have here in Manhattan. Manhattan. Exactly. I get confused. It was either the Versailles or the Monticello one. I can't remember which one was bigger. Probably, I think I want to say the, the Monticello one was bigger. Um, but he was, he, he kept a garden book and kept a log of every fruit, every vegetable, everything that he was, that he was growing. So he was, I mean, he was a farmer, so he was much more interested in, in, in that and keeping a record of that. And of course, you know, he had, there was a few recipes in his hand and he also talked about if he was an avid letter writer. So he mentioned some of the foods and some of the experiences that he was having, but he had really no interest in getting in the kitchen and, and cooking it as people doing it within one of his slaves James Hemings one of his um, slaves actually was with him in in France to learn the art of, of French cooking which he then brought back so he actually had a slave stage exactly <laughs> slave stage <laughs> a, a, hor a horrible term but I mean it's the truth this is how French cooking came back to America yeah. um, and would you consider a lot of this cooking and actually new ideas outside of cooking, politics, etc., to be neoclassical? Hmm. You mean at that time? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think there's always been an interest in, 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 in you know, cooking and, and fine dining, especially, you know, in Europe. And, of course, there's this whole culture of, of, of you know, aesthetics and, and having a beautiful environment to be in. And food, it, it, they, the French were really the first ones to raise food to that, to that level. So I think neoclassical and, 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 and before. I mean, I think we could even trace it back to the ancient Romans. They, the way that they dined, the way that they decorated the, their, their dining room and that whole, you know, culture, they kind of go hand in hand. I guess the neoclassical approach would be just the fact that the food is much simpler. But the, the relationships between... You know, being around in a beautiful environment and eating well has has been around forever. I think. Yeah, and I mean, you even mentioned the ideas of Pompeii being rediscovered at that point in Herculean society. Um, it's kind of like how the DIY movement now is being rediscovered by you know, a new generation: how to make their own cheese, uh, salumi, etc. How to, you know, sow the soil. 
exactly and also eating you know locally um, somebody earlier was talking about about eggs and farm eggs and how fresh they are and so this is something that yes we're, we're basically looking back everybody's always looking back to move forward I think we're at a pivotal moment right now in, in food culture yeah. um, let's talk about Louis is it the 16th Louis the Sixteenth was the one that was in power when Jefferson was living in France, but it was Louis the Fourteenth that was the one that that grew the kitchen garden at Versailles. He wasn't out there like Jefferson was in his horse or anything, but that that created the shift between the medieval foods that were heavily spiced and you had sweet and savory kind of all together, then eating um, just. I guess eating simpler and eating seasonal foods, and I, th I think partly it was because at that time, having you know cooking with cinnamon and nutmeg and all of these spices, these spices were already available, so there were no longer a symbol of of class and of taste and of wealth because they were more locally available. So eating fresh vegetables, eating more you know seasonal foods, became a signifier of, of taste. So he was the one that created that shift, and then that basically continued in different ways. Um, and then we, we didn't mention much about Louis XV. Was that a present person? In no, you know, he was great. He was also, I mean, Louis XIV was the one that created that shift, but he ate too much to be considered a true gourmand. Louis XV definitely, definitely was. Put in moderation. Yeah, he definitely put in moderation, and he was much more, you know, yeah, he was much more about moderation. And then the 16th was the one that was in power when, when Jefferson was there. And if you don't know who Louis XVI was, I mean, he was a tremendous figure, husband of Marie Antoinette, who had her completely different eating style as well. Yeah, and her favorite dessert was actually um, whipped cream with fresh strawberries. Marie Antoinette's favorite dessert was that. And uh, we actually made some, some whipped cream today. No strawberries. We made apples. So because it was one of the, the, one of the fruits that he had, James Madison, he's like, you know what, French apples are good, but I like the American Horace Pippin apple better. So he had those shipped over. All this shipping back and forth, maybe one of the first true mail order gamons. Exactly, exactly. The apples for, yeah, for the holidays, right? <laughs> He's so pre-Harian, David. Um, you know, I was thinking about Marie Antoinette, and, you know, is it her famous quote that says, have your cake and eat it too? Uh, let them eat cake. Let them eat cake. Let, yeah, let them eat cake. But, I mean, it, it was also bridging back on the idea of excess at a point. Like, there was this great new and fervent understanding of food and maybe excess was happening at the same time but it wasn't really shown it was very temporal um, prior to that a lot of things uh, looking at French art were very well documented but when we walked around the the Met there was only one picture of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, I know, it's crazy. The one tiny picture of Thomas Jefferson. That, I'm not really sure why. There was only that one image. They probably have some other objects that maybe belong to him, but there was only that one, that, that one image of his. And even, you know, in France, yeah, he, one of the things that he was repulsed about was this excess um, when a lot of the population was, was literally, you know, starving. And that actual phrase that let us eat cake was actually said not by Marie Antoinette but by Maria Therese who was Louis XIV's wife way before but people were just so angry and so hungry that they just she was falsely you know she, it's, it was said that she mumbled this phrase which led to the revolution but I think I, she's a very sympathetic character Marie Antoinette I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for her even though she was completely insane and they were crazy <laughs> but there's just, there's just there's something about her that I've just found find very very 
you know, interesting and, and fascinating. And we did see a lot of the objects in the museum that, that belonged to her. Um, she did sport potato flowers in her hair, which is pretty cool. <laughs> oh. From potatoes to potatoes. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about the meal that we put together. And what was so cool, too, is that all the people, I think there were eight in all, mm-hmm. say, who came participated in cooking the meal. Everyone had stations, everyone cooked and then gathered together um, to have this wonderfully, you know, again, curated family-style meal, which, funny enough, is the opposite of how Jefferson used to eat. He was the first one to introduce courses. Yeah, he definitely ate in courses here, and he, even though he had so many slaves, he ne- they weren't around much in the in the dining room. He he referred to them as, you know, they were silent, but they were they were attentive. He would rather not see them around. So he had dumb waiters. He he kind of had these things made. He 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 actually served a lot of his guests as well. So he just he didn't want to he didn't really want them around. Um, let's talk about some of the dishes, and if you could give me a little description about not only the dish and maybe where some of the elements came from, but why it relates back to Thomas Jefferson. Um, first course being an herb salad with mustard vinaigrette. The herb salad with mustard vinaigrette, again, he, he loved his, his greens, his vegetables. Um, tarragon was his favorite favorite herb, and mustard, Dijon mustard, the male brand, um, M-A-I-L-L-E brand, was his favorite mustard. So I just had to throw that in there. Yeah. Which still exists today and is actually one of my favorite mustards. Um, a spring peas with mint. Spring peas with mint. Peas were his favorite vegetable. He grew many varieties of, of, of peas at Monticello, and it's, a, it's adapted from a recipe in Mary Randolph's um, cookbook, The Virginia Housewife. That was my course. I, I helped cook that. Um, a roasted potatoes course. Roasted potatoes inspired by the... the he, he served potatoes at the White House, um, and also they were served at a... There was a, a dinner party in honor of Ben Franklin before Jefferson was in Paris, um, Ben Franklin was there, where every dish, it was hosted by Marie Antoinette and Louis the Sixteenth. every dish was a potato dish. So that they made the potatoes popular. And, and they were accented by Herbes de Provence. Exactly, Herbes de Provence. Um, a baked salmon with French green beans, black olives, and tomatoes? So black olives, the olive tree was the greatest gift of God to, to man, so it was black olives, um, salmon dish, because he... He loved salmon. He loved actually. He loved you know fish, and he ate very little meat. Um, and of course, it's just the green beans, the added element of the uh, the vegetable and the tomatoes. Again, the the tomatas that he served at the at the White House and he made popular. Um, the protein, a chicken fricassee. Chicken fricassee, another um, recipe, very very simple, a very classic French recipe that appears in an early seventeenth um, century Lavarens French, the French cook, and there's a. a this recipe also appears in Mary Randolph's cookbook. So this is an adaptation of those two. And I love it. So. Uh, it was absolutely... It, the food was spectacular. Let me just get that out there, too. It wasn't just like, you know, a chafing dish table kind of food. It was really well done. Um, I also acted as pastry chef today and uh, made an apple cobbler with whipped cream and vanilla ice cream. Mm-hmm. Apple cobbler, again inspired by the story of James Madison taking his favorite apples over. Whipped cream, Marie Antoinette's favorite, um, part of Marie Antoinette's favorite dessert. And of course the vanilla ice cream that was that was not made but, but purchased and that um, inspired by the fact that the first ice cream recipe in the U.S. is in his hand. So, come on, art food, spending a day at the Met, cooking a beautiful meal, spending it with your 
new, well-educated art and food friends. I mean, it was a fantastic day. If you have not experienced this yet, go to artbites.net. That's B-I-T-E-S dot net. Maite, it was a pleasure meeting you, having you on the food scene, and I hope you all get to experience uh, Maite's presence, which was just so inviting and such a great forum to learn about both subjects at once. Thank you so much, Michael. It was great to, to have you here. It was really fun. Excellent. And upcoming courses, uh, because this happens around the country. It's not just New York. Upcoming courses in L.A. I have a bunch of courses. I have one called uh, a medieval one coming up next month. I have one in Austin called Let Us Eat Cake. That's going to be on French Impressionism. Um, gosh, what else? I have one coming up on India in Nashville at the beginning of next year. Um, a bunch of stuff in Los Angeles, which is, which is where I'm based. But I'm in L.A. I mean, I'm in New York every four or five months. So I will be back. Somebody was saying that I should do an Italian Renaissance one next. So, so think Italian Renaissance in, in April. Yeah, and if you have ideas of regional art and regional food, contact Maite and maybe uh, bring her to your hometown or anywhere in this wonderfully gourmand globe. Again, you've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, and hope to have you listening next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Cheers.